we can't think our way out of these problems. We, we should think about them. We should try to forecast and analyze and quantify. But these things are so complex, they're like life and a child growing up, that we have to experience our way through them. We have, we, we have to engage with them through use to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And who better to invite into that kind of a discussion than someone who has been exploring time and its products for longer than I have been alive, technologist and futurist Kevin Kelly, author of the books Out of Control, New Rules for a New Economy, what technology wants and the inevitable kevin's been a major inspiration to my thinking on the continuity between the worlds of the maid and the born the notion that our technologies are themselves evolutionary products even living things and that certainly the sum total of humans and technology together represent uh, a new form of life one that profoundly challenges our conceits about the domination of nature. He also keeps a very thoughtful blog at his website, kk.org, and I frequently find myself sharing one essay in particular from that blog, his piece on the expansion of ignorance and how every question answered raises more than one additional question, making science principally the work of expanding the limits of what we know we do not know, a uh, process that seems to me to bring science and spiritual practice together in a kind of eternal asymptotic approach, a prelude to a kiss. Most lately, he has broken the news of the truly profound transformations set to overtake society with the advent of mature augmented reality in a piece he wrote for Wired magazine called AR Will Spark the Next Big Tech Platform, Call It Mirror World. This is an important idea that I have been encouraging conversations about since I was a Google Glass Explorer in 2013. What happens when we create a one-to-one -one scale map of our planet? When we can rewind the view from the park bench that we're sitting on for that day from publicly available camera footage? when absolutely everything that we sense is at least potentially overlaid with additional information and insight. The enablement of these technologies require massive changes in the way that we understand our relations to one another and our own personal identities. And as Kevin Kelly's long-term collaborator Stuart Brand at the Long Now Foundation is fond of reminding people, when progress comes too fast, people call it change, and they want it to slow down. So I understand why the emergence of Mirror World might be scary for some people, but... Kevin is probably the best person on the planet to lay your fears to rest 
and to restore in you a sense of what he calls protopian optimism for the incremental improvements of the human condition and our ever unfolding creative evolution into the adjacent possible. Before we get into this episode, however, I want to give my deep thanks to Sarah Runstrom, Ryan, Brian Hershey, Shane Dooley, Sean Herbert, and Nathan Epler for joining the Future Fossils Patreon community. This week, I am starting a new podcast, Complexity, for the Santa Fe Institute. And as of consequence, I'm going to have to just accept the reduced schedule of releases that I've been forced into with Future Fossils as a new parent. This show is transitioning officially and formally to bi-weekly, but I'm going to continue to push as much awesome exclusive content into the Patreon feed as possible. That means more exclusive episodes than the copious number of exclusive episodes that are already available in there, as well as music and writing and artwork. I'm touched at the amount of support that this show has received, both on Patreon and elsewhere, and would love to see you also joining our sci-fi book club calls, hanging out in our Facebook group, etc. So if you feel that this show has enriched your life, I hope you'll consider popping on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and signing up to drop two, five, ten bucks a month into the hat so that this show does not become a digital archive of the sponsors I had to capitulate to in order to get it produced, but can persist and grow into an even more meaningful and substantial inquiry into the edges of our maps of the modern world. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to email me futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com and if you'd like cool science, art, philosophy discussion on a daily basis hop on into the Facebook group we have really great discussions in there and uh, it may redeem your Facebook experience a little I do hear that from folks anyway, thank you so much for listening I really hope you enjoy this episode I would love to know what you think about it enjoy, take care and I'll talk to you again soon It's a long-awaited pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. It's mutual. You know, this show, we tend to explore sort of philosophical issues around technology and human technology coevolution. And, well, there's a couple things here. One is that this is the 25th anniversary of Out of Control, which is a big deal. You know, this piece about the evolution of technology moving into sort of technology itself being an evolutionary process and then this other piece that you just wrote for wired on the mirror world on augmented reality and the sort of mitosis of our analog space into a, a digital simulacrum so i'd like to try and hit both of these topics if we can sure on this call i guess the the place to start is out of control, actually. I think that there's there's something about... You wrote this book before we had this 
this revolution in machine learning, you know, and, and now we're at a point where we have these spectacularly successful tools that in many cases we don't understand. We don't understand how they are as effective as they are. And so I'm curious to know how that contributes to this sort of thesis of out of control, whether you think that we're, we're sort of past the inflection point where we are coming up with scientific theories and laws and we've sort of moved into a sort of a more magical relationship with our technologies that we don't understand and how that affects the way that we navigate knowledge and so on. Yeah, so the kind of underlying thesis of out of control is captured in its title, which is that our own creations, when they become complex, in order for them to be maximized in their usefulness to us, their adaptability, their learning, that we have to let go of them, that we won't be able to control them, we won't even be able to understand them. We use life, grow tomatoes, um, develop drugs from uh, fungus, and we have no idea really how they work. But no, we don't control them or fully understand them. And I think the same thing I would say with AI and other minds, and they're like our mind children. Part of the beauty of having children is that they're going to surprise us. We don't have full control over them. We can't predict exactly what they're going to do. We may not even understand them. And so uh, I think, yes, we have passed that threshold long ago where we no longer have total control or understanding of what we make. And that is actually the price for having things that can be creative on their own. So we're going to use these things to surprise us, to come up with solutions that we would not have come up with. And to do that, they are going to be beyond our comprehension and they'll be beyond our control in some some degree just like our children are yeah i mean our children don't seem to provide such a potent challenge to our expectations around what we're actually doing with the process of discovery like you wrote this this piece i'm constantly bringing up on the show about the expansion of ignorance mm -hmm. you know, the, the a answering a question generates more questions and, and you, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you brought that up in the inevitable also that we're at this point now where locating ourselves in the space of functional questions seems to be the thing do you see sciences working differently from this point forward i am that's an interesting question, but let me just sort of follow my thought on the, the analogy with children. Hmm. Imagine a world where, you know, for tens of thousands of years, um, people just never died. They, they lived forever. And then suddenly, one year, the first children were born. No one had any experience with children before. It would freak people out. <laughs> because suddenly, here are these things that you don't know what to do. Who knows what they're going to do? So the only reason why we're comfortable with children is because we've had a long history of many, many generations of realizing that children are not going to kill us in our sleep. But if, they, if we had never had any experience before and suddenly they were here, 
and they would totally freak us out. And that's sort of what AI is, is that this is our first experience, and so we're all freaked out because they're going to kill us in our sleep. And it'll take several generations for us to understand how to deal with them. Now, is science changing? Yes. I mean, I, I've written a lot about the, the, the evolution of science itself. That science is a method of – it's accumulation of many different types of things and that it has been evolving all along and it will continue to evolve. And so, yes, science is changing. And one of the, the ways it is changing is with big data and computation. And there's lots of things that it's doing. But one of the things that it's doing is that it's uh, – allowing us to solve problems without a theory with just by brute force i mean the, the the example of this would be the way google does spell correction so it's correcting your spelling not because it knows anything about the laws of spelling simply because it has a database of a gazillion people correcting it in terms of retyping something. So it has no theory about spelling. It just has data. So there's lots of ways in which we can understand things, discover things, even without a theory, just by using huge amounts of data. So that's one way that science has changed. And another way I think is going to change more than it has, which is using AI to help us prove things, to, to go through huge amounts of data and complicated steps and to actually decide that this is valid or this is not. And then eventually maybe even to help propose theories that um, we don't have. So, and will change the way science is done, but um, it's not necessarily going to eliminate the, the old ways of doing science. Mm. You know, something in that Hans Moravec mind children sure. analogy here that I think uh, you also wrote about in this piece about Mirror World, um, citing uh, Keiichi Matsuda, who did the fabulous hyper-reality concept video of what it would be like to live in AR. You know, you quote him as saying that putting on this, these AR glasses or immersing yourself in whatever way in Mirror World is like... Think of Frodo when he puts on the one ring, Matsuda says. And I've thought a lot about this in terms of the new selves that emerge, the way that we construct the self in these new spaces, much like being a parent. Like I, I just had my first child and it's obvious how the child innocently affects this extraordinary agency over me. Um, I feel like we're, we're moving into a space where we're having a, to find a different sort of reckoning with the way that the decisions are no longer located in what we thought of as the modern self, but exist in some sort of relationship with our technologies. Oh. It seems like right now the, the, the general thinking in the mainstream is very paranoid around this, you know, and for good reason, given Cambridge Analytica and, and so on. So how do you understand choice and agency in the, these complex new spaces yeah um I, th I think first of all as americans we tend to have a very individualistic view of the world thinking that we make decisions in a solo fashion but in fact i think a lot of our decisions are made out of habit and there's somewhat in some senses caused by society and around us and that um 
there are other things that are absolutely decided collectively rather than us individually. And so it is a little bit of um, an incorrect view to, to, to imagine that we're kind of these lone agent making decisions that affect us when, in fact, the kinds of things that we decide are only part of it. And we'll never be able to kind of unravel that complex mix of nurture and nature and even how much of the decisions that we make are kind of baked into our temperament and our genes. And so we can't unravel all that. We can only acknowledge the fact that there's a a mix of things. And I think we add to that mix technology. So in a certain abstract sense, civilization is a kind of technology all the laws and the structures around us the society around us is an invention of our mind and we're just moving it further along i don't think there's some kind of threshold border where we're suddenly in a new territory we're going further but we're going in the same direction we've been going for a thousand years at the very least and that includes this moment where where we have been we're wholly dependent on technology. We we, le- we left that 10,000 years ago, where we as beings or animals could not survive very long if we took all technology away from us. So we are, we are, we're already long dependent wholly for our survival on technology, and we're going more in that direction. So, so this kind of co-evolution symbiotic relationship with technology is continuing it's not like we're just starting now it's it's continuing and the cost of that the cost of that symbiosis is yes we're dependent on it so if it goes away or collapses we're doomed so we have to make sure it doesn't go away and a lot of what we spend our time is is making sure that this thing continues to go and then there's the other questions about Identity, you know, it's like, well, if we are symbiotic with what we've made, uh, then who are we? And, and the kind of questions you talked about, who, who's in control? Who's really making the decisions? And the answer is, is, well, we all are, or it's it's making decisions, or collectively, we are making decisions. And um, we're going to go, we're going to continue in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I emphasize the fact that Humans are the first animals that we domesticated, that we've invented ourselves, that we are in this very curious position that causes us great conflict and great duress and great perplexity, which is that we are both the creator of ourselves and the created. We are both the parent and the child at the same time. We are both the masters of technology and the slaves to it. And we will always be in that conflicted two-faced relationship. That's what gives us such... That's why we wring our hands and we'll be wringing our hands in a thousand years because (laughs) we um, can't escape from the fact that we are... We make our tools, and tools shape us. That there is this co-evolutionary bonding, that symbiotic um, entwining with our very creation. So we are both the created and the creator, and that's a very weird position to be in. But that's where we are, and we're going to go forward into more of that, where we make more of the things in the world, and they will then 
make us. We will make things in the world. We will decide to make them, and they will decide things for us. And so we have to get good at this. Stuart Brand likes to talk about we are as gods. We should get good at it. But there's a, another sense in which we are kind of like, well, again, we, we, we are cyborgs and should get good at it. Hmm. Yeah, the the gods thing is interesting insofar as it relates to the the parents issue, seeing your parents as gods growing up and realizing just how limited they actually were. And, you know, this, again, kind of relates to this theme throughout your writing of the evolution of organic and inorganic systems as a product of this runaway thermodynamic dissipation in what technology wants and, and in other writings you've put forward this case that you know people like uh, dorian sagan and other people have put forward that the biosphere is a dissipative structure that it organizes in order to to dissipate energy you know energy uh to accelerate entropy and that this keeps getting faster and faster and faster and so you anchored you know moore's law in this much much greater sort of substrate independent process which puts us right now at this point where it feels like we're at a a phase shift bearing witness to the birth of all of these new technologies that move so much faster than we are capable of comprehending them this related to something in the inevitable you give a chapter to becoming as a trend and you're writing on VR, you've given attention to the plasticity of our body maps, you know, the possibility of telepresence robotics decentering this, this identity. So, I mean, do you think that we're at a point now, I guess, where the pace of change challenges not just this notion of the individual, but of a continuous self you know if we're going to spend the rest of our lives as noobs like you suggest in the inevitable are we what is there of identity like you know how does that what is there left to hold on to in terms of that kind of thing no it's it's a great it's a great question um i i think there's several things along the same lines that we're wrestling with and uh, I do agree that the pace of change, and particularly the kinds of things that are now that we're now inventing, artificial minds, ways to modify ourselves through genetic engineering, that each one of these advances, when they come along, causes us to have to re-examine our ideas of who we are, both individually and as a species. I mean, it's like. For a long time, we were kind of imagining that humans were these exceptional beings that could do X, Y, and Z, play chess or drive a car. And then, you know, like we say, the humans are the only animals that do, you know, whatever is dream or the only animals that um, play or use tools. And then we keep finding, well, no, that's not true. Some animals would do that, but we're going to actually make machines that do this. So, what is, so, so, so then where does that leave us how are we unique how are we connected to machines uh, and then so 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 that's sort of like the first challenge to us is that we have these ideas of who we are and they're being challenged so as you say where does that leave us but i think that's actually maybe not the best way to think about it because at the same time that that's that our own identity is being nibbled away it's also very clear that through genetic engineering other means 
we are changing ourselves at the same time. We've continued this process of inventing ourselves for thousands of years, and it's not we're not done yet. We're going to we're going to modify and change ourselves even more. And so the question is not like what does it mean to be human? It's like what do we want humans to be? What do we want to be? And that is a very open-ended question that's actually more difficult to answer. Um, but it's more exciting in, in, in many ways. It's like uh, not only are we challenging who we have been or who we are, but we're going to challenge who we ought to be or who we want to be. And the subsidiary question is like, will there be a consensus? Do we want a consensus? Do we need a consensus? Can we speciate, divide? Can we have multiple varieties? Is that terrible? So so I think that is a new challenge new in a sense that we have new powers although as i think we've been defining ourselves inventing ourselves all along but not as consciously and deliberately as we're now going to do and so the goals and the directions are now before us where we kind of have to think about this a little bit more and not just kind of be carried by happenstance and so the, this these kinds of things that you're talking about the speeding up the questions of our identity and our privacy and who are we and what do we want to be are really amplified to where i think this is going to be the central question in the next hundred years is this ongoing identity crisis <laughs> of who do we want humans to be and it's exciting because it is an open-ended question. We, we and I think we should start to make answers for that. And you know, like anybody growing up, there there are lots of different paths to go, and it'll take a long time to answer this question. You don't, you know, reach age thirteen and decide that you know who you are. It's, you know, we're, we're not even close to adolescence, but but we're still in the infancy. And it's going to take a long time for us to kind of come around to these things. But that's sort of the general assignment. And, I, you know, and I think they'll be hand-wringing the entire way because at times we will feel that we don't have a choice in where we're going. And other times it's clear that we can make choices. And uh, both of the things will be true at the same time. Mm. You know, it's it, and in listening to you speak about all this right now, one of the things that comes up is I, I had a an episode a while back with Zach Stein, who's a uh, philosopher, who's talking about the importance of reviving the practice of metaphysics in the 21st century. I mean, really, ultimately, when you talk about this question of what it means to be human, what we would like for it to mean. This is a metaphysical question. It's not a question that there is any obvious way to ask from the position of quantitative research, you know, of a sort of scientific framing. It, it stands, you know, these questions stand alongside those kinds of questions. So I don't know. It seems as though, I mean, how do you, how do you feel about the process of sense making in this space? Because it seems at least from where I'm standing, and maybe one day this will be considered hopelessly naive, but it seems as though our process, like our hermeneutic process of coming to some sort of meaning in a cultural way is challenged, even as it is made necessary by that accelerating pace of things, by the accelerating cycle that demands a, 
a constantly refreshed attempt at revitalizing our technological literacy. Like just to bring up like deep fake, if we lose the thread of being able to identify media as admissible evidence, if we no longer understand how to agree on facts, then how do we even engage in a sort of communal metaphysical enterprise in that kind of way? So I wrote a piece in the cover story for Whole Earth Review in 1984 called The End of Photography is the Evidence of Anything. <laughs> we passed that threshold where you can't trust your eyes long ago and i actually wrote something recently called lie detection which is the, the fact that you know if you see words on a page i have no idea anybody can it's very easy to change a letter or a word on a page i have no idea whether that's true i can't tell by looking at the sentence whether it's been altered or not so we have only one way to detect lies which is retrospectively in history Right, so it's almost impossible to ascertain infallibly the truth in the present. So, what we come to is we can only trust sources that have been proven in the past, that have a history, that have been proven in the past to be reliable, to be trustworthy, and that's ultimately what. That's ultimately where the the um, your the facts reside. Facts can only be proven by sources that have been reliable in the past and those sources can be counted on to be reliable in the present so i think there are there are ways to do that but i think our expectations about what what that looks like should should be altered that that it isn't that we can't trust anything it's just that we can't trust anything immediately. We can only trust things that have been tr reliable in the past. Mm -hmm. So we want institutions or people with long histories that we can use to verify and have some consensus about, um, you know, or some way to, to, to reach a consensus about um, whether they've been reliable in the past. I'm, uh, in general, I, I, I think this is a temporary problem that's tractable that we've fixed before with the rise of journalism and having trusted sources uh, under a threat now with a new with new media that doesn't have as long of a history and so in a couple of years or whatever we'll we'll sort this out i don't think this is any existential threat because i think it's something that is i think there's a huge incentive to to solve it and lots of people who would work on making that solvable i i think there are other issues that i worry about now other than that i worry about cyber war and conflict and cyber mischief and <laughs> other things like that because um we don't have a consensus on what's permissible what's acceptable countries and states go to great efforts to hide their activities and they have a lot of money to do that so it's very hard to, to be accountable and so all the, there's all these forces conspired against right now against having those solutions and i think it's tractable but i think it's possible that we may have a couple disasters first before we get a consensus on 
what's acceptable and what's not. And I don't, you know, it, it may take some while before we, or some experiences before we decide what's acceptable and what's not. And, and, and that's the other larger point I wanted to make was is you were talking before about Cambridge Analytica, I think maybe you were mentioning, and others with these new things. And, and that is, is that I really want to stress that we can't think our way out of these problems. We, we should think about them. We should try to forecast and analyze and quantify. But these things are so complex, they're like life and a child growing up, that we have to experience our way through them. We have, we, we have to engage with them through use to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And so the idea, which I just saw in an article, I think it was the Chris Hedges or the, the, the Facebook guy who wanted to break up Facebook. And yeah. he, was saying, he was saying something like, um, oh, if only we had realized um, these difficulties when we first started. And the, the whole point is that you can't. It was impossible. Even if you desired with all your heart and spent all your time trying to figure it out at that time, it was impossible. There, you, the only way to figure out how these things were going to work was to do them, to live through it. It's kind of like, you know, uh, a twelve-year-old hoping to decide um, what their career is going to be right then, and and they don't want to have to go through adolescence and young adulthood to figure it out. They just want to know, like, tell me now. I don't want to have to figure it out, and so we can't. It's too complicated. It's too complex. The, the shortest way to get the answer is to run the experiment, right? That's, that's the incompressibility of these large systems is that you yeah. can't compress them. You can't simulate. You actually have to run them out. And so the only way we can figure out what social media, how it works, what it's good for, what it's bad for is to run it out, is to do the experiment, have a billion people using it. And there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be things that we didn't like things we didn't expect and so we correct them but one of the great inventions of silicon valley was the demoralization of failure it was saying that unlike maybe other parts of the world that if you failed with a business or uh, an experiment that that was a way of learning that was a that was a fail forward you were going forward you weren't a morally corrupt person because you lost a billion dollars you weren't you know, you, you, you were an awful person because your startup failed. It was part of the cost of trying something new. And that somehow seems to be lost in this moment where there are parts or things about social media that people don't like or that they feel are heart, hurtful or whatever. And it's like, well, th the people who are doing this are evil. They're Satan. They're morally corrupt. They should be in jail. Lock them up. And this is entirely medieval in its attitude we need to understand that we're going to have tons of mistakes and things that don't work at large scale because that is the only way that we're going to understand them can't think our way out of these things just as a 12 year old is not going to just sit there and think about what their career is going to be you 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 have to kind of live through it mm. so in that incompressibility, there's a resonance point with the way that you open this article on the mirror world, where you you compare it to Jose Luis Borges's one-to-one -one map, 
of reality. And you know, in thinking about that, this issue that is already an issue of the way that we reconcile the digital map of an, an analog world, you know, to put it in kind of gross terms, we have issues that, you know, like Doug Rushkoff has talked about, you know, present shock, the way that the infinite capacity of the digital platform consumes our finite attention. Uh, you've got cities like Venice that are literally sinking under the weight of their tourists because of a, a failure to reconcile the local and the global. And I'm curious to know, you surely have given thought to the new challenges that will be presented by a system that even more completely enfolds what we think of as the world and provides more and more opportunities for people to mistake one for the other or to unleash some sort of catastrophic global influence on locations. And I don't know, I'm, I hope you don't mind me taking the sort of devil's advocate position here or the, the cynical position, but you've spent a lot of time beating away these kind of things. So, so, so let me just, for the benefit of the listeners, is to kind of describe very briefly what this mirror world is. It's, um, um, it's sort of like um, Google Earth, which we all kind of all know or understand. Google Earth is this virtual layer or view of the real world, and it's and it's a one to one. So, in a certain sense, like Street View, as you walk along Street View, you are. Um, uh, you, ha- you have an entire world that's as big as this world, but in the mirror world that we're talking about, you wear a special pair of glasses, and they're not like VR glasses, which are dark, and you only see the virtual. These are see-through, so that you see the real world, and there's this layer, a virtual layer that you can add to see a virtual earth or virtual building at the same scale and in the same place kind of like a ghost of that world and that allows you many to do many things but you kind of interact with it almost in a real way you could be standing in a room and with the glasses on you'd see a virtual version of the room and maybe there's a a sofa that you want to try out and you could try out a virtual sofa in your living room walk around it and it would appear almost like it was really there you could change the fabric color you can move it around uh in many ways and so that that kind of digital twin um is one aspect of this this world and and everything is being scanned as you look at it in other words the look the act of looking at it actually rescans and maps the world. So the map is being remapped every time you use it. So there's this kind of compounding effect. The more people use it, the bigger the world and deeper the world gets. So the question is, is we can go through the, some of the virtues, the benefits that you'd have of this virtual one-to-one mirror world, this, this digital twin of the world, all the things that you could do with it. But one of the questions you said, well, you know, how awful could it be? What, what's the price? What's the cost? Because there will always be a cost. Well, one of the first costs of this is that to operate in this world is you're being tracked. Is is it your your body movements? In other words, for you, if you're going to use your hand to push that virtual sofa into another position, the movement of your hand is going to be tracked in your living room. So. You're being tracked in your living room. So who, where, where is that data going? Who, who, who control? What else is being it? So there's a thousand questions about this surveillance, this monitoring that's necessary to operate in this mirror world. 
And those kind of questions will make the kind of current questions about Facebook seem tame in kindergarten <laughs> compared to where where we're going. And so um, so that's kind of the first big step. Then there's these other steps about public versus private and where that boundary exists is your is your face public is your when you're outside and your movements are being used even you know now they're considered public but if they're being recorded is that public anymore in what sense is it public and so there's those issues those issues of ownership of 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 who controls what something looks like what can be done there's there's a there's a whole bunch of different other conundrums coming and what i would say is we as i said we can i could stand here and try to think about those but i'm pretty sure that most of the things that will be most worrisome about this will not be the ones that we think of right now most of the ones we think of now will probably be cured or answered. And the big problems that we'll all be pulling our hair out in 20 years from now will be ones that we never thought of. And that the only ways that we're going to actually fix the ones we can think of is through use, is through, is through using them, is through gathering data, the actual evidence of how we actually use them versus how we thought we were going to use them because we never use them the way we thought we were. And so I'm for steering technology through engagement, through using it. I think if you don't use something, you don't get to steer it. That's why prohibition, outlawing, regulating to a standstill are bad ideas because then you don't get to steer it's only through engagement and use that we get to actually make some decisions, figure out where things are working or not. And so I preach full embrace of these as a way to figure out what works and what don't work and to rely on actual data, evidence to make decisions rather than making decisions about what we could imagine would happen. So, you know, something that is, there's a through line, I think, in, in everything that you've brought up today, which you neatly summarize in this piece on the mirror world as history will be a verb, you know, like in what technology wants casting the entire history of the evolution of technology as a thermodynamic free energy minimizing dissipative structure, we're down to the <laughs> relatively mundane of being able to sit on a park bench as, as you describe and rewind the day through your AR lenses, which are accessing recordings that somewhere have to be verified as an actual history. And, you know, then again, uh, you know, the Matsuda quote in this piece talking about how an object in the analog world can be reappropriated for some different function, like using mm -hmm. a pencil as a magic wand. This fluidity of identity, the constant data-reinforced reevaluation of our space. I'm curious, as someone who's, who's given so much thought to this, how you orient yourself in time. Even before Mirror World, it seems that history is already a verb and that we're constantly yeah, yeah. regenerating it. Yeah, I mean... Most of the most interesting people I know talking about the future are great historians. And I, much to my surprise, over the years have become more and more interested in history and reading me more and more because um, 
you, you get a better sense of the continuity and the ways in which i mean i i i think the specifics of the future are inherently unpredictable they're they're stochastic they're fundamentally i wouldn't call random but they're fundamentally unpredictable however i think the larger outlines the larger thrusts the larger directions are inevitable and to see those larger directions it's helpful to to look into the past because they are continuations of what's been going on and so the more i want to look into the future the more i need to look into the past and at the long now foundation we call that the long now where you're expanding the now from the last five minutes to the next five minutes and you're making a longer version of that where it's the last thousand years and the next thousand years and that perspective of kind of taking in a larger uh, view is is also a systems view where we understand that it's you know the major factors are not like individual persons people individual people very rarely make a dent in the universe most of the things happening are because of systems that are there and running and they have systems have their own agendas and the technium itself has an agenda so part of that agenda can be ascertained by looking at the long-term history of things and so the view if i have one is of the long now which is to 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 kind of expand the now to include the long past and the long future so as a fan of the long now long-term fan of the long now i i have to ask if history is a verb then tomorrow's history isn't yesterday's history so even as someone who identifies as a quote paleontologist futurist and agrees with you in a deep like bones deep way about everything that you just said there's some part of me nagging that says is it really effective or honest in some way to cast our present understanding into the past and then use that as a scaffold upon which to imagine into the future when we know that it is in some sense an act of presentism you know yeah 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 well of course of course our understanding of the past is fragmentary at best and will only improve uh into the future the classical you know case of the you know old archaeologists sort of uh missing most of the stuff of the evidence or destroying it in there and you know and so you you kind of like you proof future proof archaeological digs by you know saving part of it to be unearthed later on when there was better tools and better understanding mm. so um yes and and i mean that's true of any and any thought we have about the future it, we're not really I mean, you know, science fiction authors know this very, very deeply. You're never really writing about the future. You're always really writing about the present. You're predicting the present in some senses. You're using the excuse of a future world to kind of really talk about now. And so we really can't escape our blinders of the present. We're going to be blinded by, when we look in the past, we're going to be blinded by who we are and our background and our upbringing. And we're blinded when we look in the future by the same the same blinders. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't 
try or shouldn't do it. We just have to be aware, you know, that it's uh, like any any other science, that it's uh, incremental, that it's preliminary, that it's a work in progress. And so we make the best view we can. We, we look at the past. We make the best stab at it we, we possibly can with uh, being as honest and open-minded as we can, knowing, like science, that in 100 years from now, they may laugh at us for our naivete. But, you know, it's incremental. We, 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 we're, we're not going to be 100% wrong. We may be 5% right, which is, in my book, a protopian view, incremental progress, a 1% improvement. 1% a year is all we need. Even if we create 1% more than we destroy every year, that's all that we need to make civilization. If we have 1% more information over ignorance a year, then that compounded is what civilization is about. Well, I know that we're, we're coming up on the end of this here, so that's a great place to segue into a question I, I like to ask people at the ends of these conversations, which is, assuming that this recording is going to get cut into a diamond or whatever and you know launched out into space and self-replicating nanobots or found by some archaeologist hundreds or thousands of years hence what are you most concerned with communicating to mm. those unborn people as a as well, a long now guy i know you have a good answer to this wow no that's a fantastic question i've never been asked that that's why it's fantastic. Um, I have to think about it for a couple of seconds. That's a sure. really great question. What is my message to the future? Hmm. So I made a hobby for a while of looking at time capsules, which are basically messages to the future. And um, there are actually a lot of them are made. And, and unfortunately, the, the destiny the statistical destiny for most time capsules is to be completely forgotten, utterly <laughs> No, no, they're they're buried and nobody remembers them. They're like ninety five percent are forgotten within five, ten years. So that's unfortunately um, their destiny. But the ones that ha that are found and opened are kind of interesting because you get to see these messages from the past that are sent into the future, and almost invariably, the contents are not interesting to us now. <laughs> people ideas about what people are going to be interested in and and usually they're 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 not interested in them they're just you guess wrong and so knowing that um i don't know if there's anything i can any information or you know data that i could move forward that i think anybody in the future would all be at all interested in and i think maybe the only message that i would like to, to hear them say is um, or to read is that um, we're trying our best right now I know we're going to make mistakes um, I'm sure you'll find some of the things we do right now to be totally embargnant and I wish I knew which <laughs> what they were but that you know we are concerned about keeping enough options open for you in the future and what i am working towards is to put forth to 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 carry forward 
as many of those possibilities to, to maximize the pop, possibilities that you have to work into the future. And that's sort of what I am working on. And so it's sort of more of a message of, hey, I, I, I know we're not going to give you the ideal, but um, I am aware of our fallibilities, but we are trying our best. That's a beautiful thing. Since you slipped there and you said, what would I like to hear them say? Is there anything that... Oh, I a, see. A message of receipt there that you would oh, love well, to... Oh, well, of course. <laughs> of course I would... Um, yeah, I mean, that's the dream of a lot of us is to meet you know, another civilization somewhere in the universe or to hear a message from the future. You know, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many things you you would want to know. I mean, because of the Fermi paradox, because of the fact that we haven't gotten overt contact with other civilizations, there is a concern about whether we're the only ones, whether we can make it, you know, long term. And so I think, you know, if there was a message from the future of a thousand years, just Getting that alone would be very, very encouraging. Yeah, you'd know for sure then that we live know in a four-dimensional yeah. world. Yeah, or or that you know that we didn't screw up completely, that we didn't end civilization on this planet. So a thousand-year reign would be remarkable. Of course, in the in the you know galactically, it's it's nothing, but um, it would still be very encouraging to get the, such a message. Well, you guys speak English? Yeah. Well, no, I don't expect them to, but they probably have a translator to translate into English. Definitely. Well, Kevin, I, I'm just delighted to have had this conversation with you. I, I have many more questions, but we'll have to save them for another time. I really appreciate sure. you taking the time for this. I'm glad you called, and thanks for the great questions. And as I said, the last one was one I haven't heard before, and, and uh, it was a real joy to, to, to try and answer it. Awesome. Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod Network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, the Future Fossils coloring book and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. <laughs>